Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my brand new podcast, Beast, The Murder of Nora Sheehan, streaming now, wherever you get your podcasts. He said, if people are going to kidnap me, I'm going to kidnap me. And he's quite fatalistic about it. There wasn't much he could do. I mean, he could have left Ireland before the kidnapping. He tried to vary his routes and so on and tried to stay alert. He said, you have to live your life. He wanted to bring his daughter to school in the mornings because he was the only parent. And he wanted to do that. He found out afterwards that he was being under surveillance for weeks. I'm Nicola Talent, and you're listening to Crime World, a podcast about criminals drugs and the sins of the underworld in Ireland and across the globe. The kidnap of top supermarket executive Don Tidy and the nationwide manhunt that followed ended 23 days later during a chaotic rescue in Elytrum Wood when a recruit Garda and a soldier lost their lives. Now the incredible story from 1983 and its implications on political relations between Ireland and England, dictats on ransom demands to big business and the legacy it left on the Leitrim town of Balnamore are brought together in a major new page turner. Today I'm talking with journalists and Leitrim natives Tommy Conlon and Ronan McGreevy about their fascinating new book, The Kidnapping. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. How do you write a book? Two, two people. people. No, we're like Elton John and Bernie Taupin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> two rooms. What do you do? You take you take a kind of a... I mean, we divvied up chapters and you do this one and I'll do this one. Yeah. yeah. And we sent those chapters to each other. Uh, he had, he'd edit mine, I'd edit his over and back like that. And Tommy had the final say. So what, what would go to the publisher would be after we've done everything, but he'd have the last say. Do you know? Oh, so that's yeah. be- only because I'm just OCD with the right. rest, you know. <laughs> and I'm not. <laughs> and uh, he's less OCD. And, uh, he just wants to get it done. And, yeah. 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 And, uh, and, and I, I'm there polishing it uh, 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 obsessively. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. But anyway. It, 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 and spellings and punctuation and everything, that's his domain as well. You right. Know, so. Oh, that's right. So, yeah, so anyway. Was, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, it's a labour of love, these books, aren't they? But a story really um, well worth telling. And I suppose we launch into it in the middle of um, the forest where there's a search for Don Tidy. Mm. And, you know, it really sets the scene. Um, and then we kind of go back to that as the book continues. We go back there and we we kind of, again, see what's happening, what's going on. But in the background to all of it, which is really interesting time in Ireland, isn't it? Um so the IRA are basically needing to make money and they're seeing kidnapping as a way of charging a ransom. Very high risk crime kidnapping. People don't tend to do it anymore. <laughs> but at the time it did look sort of attractive. Um, I was surprised because I knew nothing about this. The first IRA kidnap was a lord and lady. Donnamore. Yeah. Tell me about them. Well, uh, they were um, Anglo-Irish uh, uh, family based in Tipperary who um, who had a stately home in Tipperary. And the IRA were under the impression that, that they were well 
um, connected, uh, where in fact they weren't. And at that time, uh, the Price sisters, Dolores and Marion Price, were uh, in jail and were down for a long stretch following the um, uh, the Old Bailey bombing in 1973 where the IRA tried to basically blow up the centre of London uh, with a, lo- a load of car bombs that were caught coming back uh, uh, at Heathrow Airport. Um, so Marion Price and Dolores Price were in jail in England and they wanted to go, they wanted to be sent back to, to Northern, Northern Ireland, Ireland to serve, serve their sentence. Yeah. So that was the thinking behind uh, the kidnapping of uh, Donna Moore. That so that was more a kind of a, um, they weren't actually looking for, for money from that couple. They were yeah. looking to hold them to make sure that the Price sisters got back to the north. And the same with the the Tata Herma kidnapping a year later in 1975. That was a, 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 a ransom that was originally just for uh, to get a number of IRA prisoners mm-hmm. uh, out of um, out of out of out of jails yes uh, that was it you know okay so it moves us I suppose I mean you've all this stuff going on and it's all very relevant isn't it um it as we move into the 1980s Ben Dunn is kidnapped you have the hunger strikes going on up in the north of Ireland you have the Glenan gang very active um it's a time that kind of feels like something we're watching on telly now in a different country. It's hard to believe all of that was going on in our tiny little island. It's a, it's it's a, one of those things that I wonder is that when you're living th- through them at the time, as I'm old enough to have lived through them at the time, and you know, if you're to look back and it, you kind of just kind of know it's happening, but you're getting on with your life, and um, like everyone has to get up in the morning and do their work or do the go to college or whatever, uh, bring up a family and you know what's all happening. But for some reason, I don't know how it is with our, how human beings operate, but it's, it's, it's somehow it seems to take time and perspective to look back in it and see how anarchic it was, dangerous it was, mm. crazy it was, how... So sort of volatile it was, a bit of a sort of an element of, are we, you look back and now, is it a banana republic? There's an element of that. There was so much crime and, and the IRA had, had uh, just, I don't know what, they had, they were multiplied the crime rate from bank robberies, post office, all sorts, through the 70s and 80s. And, um, and by 83, um, and the kidnapping of Mr. Tidy, and you'll know that Shergar was also kidnapped earlier that year, and there was an attempt on to kidnap uh, Galen Weston, um, Don Tidy's ultimate employer, also, uh, in, in September, I think, 83. So by the time uh, the Tidy uh, kidnap happens, late November 83, and suddenly they're gone to ground, the kidnappers and the hostage. And people are wondering, um, can the security forces defend our state? Mm. And, you, and, and at the time as well, Dominic Mad Dog McGlinchey's on the run and Dominic Mad Dog, uh, the, the, the guard that you're looking for him in every nook and cranny, he was released on bail in late 1982 when he absconded. And that was happening around the country and even during the Don Tidy kidnapping uh, McGlinchey and his wife tied uh, uh, tied up a Gardaí, two Gardaí in, in County Cork who were looking for, for him in a house in Carrick Tuhill and then after the kidnapping of Don Tidy he, they tied up Gardaí in Wexford I mean it was a mad time So it's and all happening around that same time it's kind yeah. of like that fear that the balance of power is going to tip into the hands of the terrorists mm. away from the state there was there was very serious. I, I mean, that year in 1983, uh, not only do you have three uh, kidnappings: Shergar, Gail, and Weston, and, and Don Tidy. You have the murder of uh, 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 Brian Stack in Portleash, the 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 prison officer in Portleash. You have the provisional IRA trying to flood the south uh, with counterfeit money, which was another way uh, of of earning money. You have as I said, McGlinchey on the run and you have uh, quite a few atrocities up the north that year as well. And had we prison breaks at that stage too? Uh, Well, funny enough, um, today, believe it or not, is the 50th anniversary of the uh, Mountjoy helicopter escape Mm. in which three men got away from Mountjoy, three IRA prisoners got away from Mountjoy, including one of the 
suspected organisers of the Don Tidy kidnapping. And so you had a lot of, you had prison breaks in Ireland in 1974 as well. Uh, but the most famous one and the one that's pertinent to this kidnapping is the Mays prison break of September 1983, which was at that time the largest prison break since the Second World War. 38 prisoners since 19 of them were still on the run when Don Tidy was kidnapped. Right. So we go back to the beginning of 1983 and Shergar's first. So a little bit of background on that and then bring us up to Galen West and who he is and, and what happened. Well, um, the the IRA, uh, um, various estimates as, but to fund the terrorism campaign, there were various estimates that they needed two million pounds a year or Irish punts, I guess. Or, and um, there had been, there had been an escalation in bank robberies over the previous, armed bank robberies over the previous decades with some fatalities as well. And uh, and after a number of years, the state, the Department of Justice, the uh, Garda Síochána, Top Brass, uh, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're bringing in the banking, the top banking people and saying, listen, everyone needs to ramp up security. Mm. And as a result, apparently, it becomes more challenging uh, for the terrorists to just walk into banks and rob them because security has been ramped up, leading them to take the strategic decision uh, to try kidnapping. And uh, they apparently measure, measured up the possibilities of that. And, and, and their first uh, uh, famous attempt of that era was Sharagar, the wonder horse, the winner of the 1981 Epsom Derby, uh, one of the greatest uh, race horses uh, apparently that ever lived and was by now, by 83, extremely valuable as a stallion. So we're not even, so let's, the rationale appeared to be we're not even abducting a human, we're abducting a horse. Uh, but it was disastrous as well because they were completely incompetent in how to handle uh, a stallion. A stallion. And uh, yeah. apparently the horse had to be uh, put down very quickly during that whole escapade. And then we fast forward from there then to, to Galen August Weston. 1983. So mm. Galen Weston is um, part of the fabulously wealthy Western family who own British, uh, Associated British Foods. So they have supermarket interests in Canada. They own such brands in the UK as Fordham and Mason. They have Brown Thomas. They have at the other end of the spectrum, they have Pennies, they have Quinsworth, Power Supermarkets. They're, they're a vast, vast uh, conglomerate. Uh, but Galen Weston uh, married an Irish woman, Hilary Weston. Um, and he had a, he had a big estate down in Roundwood. So the IRA thought, well, he would be a perfect, a uh, perfect individual to kidnap. They attempted to kidnap him on the eighth of August, nineteen eighty-three. They didn't know what the time, but they were walking straight into a trap. Gardaí had advanced information uh, about about them, and there was a shootout at which a four of the five kidnappers involved were shot, and one was seriously wounded. The five kidnappers were um, all given hefty jail sentences and that was another disaster for the IRA. So so where was that tip-off coming from, Scapatici, probably if it's not... Well, yeah, right? apparently he was one of them. Uh, there's a, various different sources. One was a bug uh, on the Dublin Brigade. Another was Sean O'Callaghan, although that's denied by the Gardaí themselves. Um, apparently they had uh, inter in intercepted a phone call in which somebody from the IRA Dublin Brigade said that the fellas having his... Um, He's having his his gates um, uh, painted, and of course they went around to all the high net worth individuals in Dublin. There wasn't a huge amount of them at the time, and <laughs> uh, or in Wicklow, uh, and 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 they noticed that Galen Weston was getting his um, was getting his his gates painted. But there was there was various different sources right. of intelligence at that time. But the armed detectives were waiting for them in the yard of the yeah. estate when the uh, terrorists arrived in. And how did that all go down at the time? You know, I mean, this was okay. Shergar is gone you know, never to be seen again. I mean, this is the second in the same year. Is there a, immediately a sense that the state's on top of this, they've had a tip-off here, they've saved Galen Weston, yeah. heroic policing work, or is there a rising sense of fear then amongst kind of the very few wealthy business people we had in the Absolutely, country at the time? Yeah. And, and we point out in the book as well that, I mean, you know, in 1983, it's a it's it's a very dark time. Let's just talking about the Republic of Ireland. There's record unemployment at the start of the year. Fifteen percent of the 
of the public are unemployed, uh, 25% of young people are unemployed, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of the fact that people are clearing out of the country. There's a huge amount of immigration. So one of the, the last thing this country needs is prominent business people being kidnapped at a time when Ireland was desperate for foreign direct investment. It's an easy sell now. Mm. It was a very hard sell during the Troubles, even in the South. And um, there was a, there was there was a feeling, and this is this 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 was what was told to us as well by um, Gardaí that were around at the time that the provisional IRA were a constant threat, day in day out, constant threat. They were smuggling weapons across the border. They were involved in intimidation, and. Um, obviously, they were involved in kidnapping. They were involved in armed robberies of various descriptions. Even though um, uh, security had been ramped up, so it was a very dangerous time in the state, and there was a genuine fear that 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 the security forces were going to lose control of the situation. Mm, mm. Uh, hard to believe now, but that was a fear well, that was around at the time. Totally. I mean, if you look at you know this is terrorism, but you bring it to organised crime in Drogheda recently. Yeah. The feud there, the balance almost tipped too. Mm. There was a feeling that the criminals had taken control of a town and Limerick and, um, was, and Limerick yeah. Nicola, and yeah. there was fears from the business communities as well as the communities that are living with it are afraid to let their children out the door, or whatever. Um, but the business communities are afraid too. Mm. Is that you know you're sitting in the, the U.S. with a big load of money to invest, you Google Drogheda and up comes Warzone, you know? So it's the same thing. It just... Mm. Just more so, I mean, the, the the difference between the criminal gangs and the provisional IRA is that criminal gangs are not uh, dedicated to uh, overthrowing the state. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the big issue. I mean, the provisional IRA had as its declared aim not just the, the end of the of the northern state, which we know about, but also the end of the twenty six county state, which they believed was an illegitimate creation, and mm. they wanted to have a democratic socialist republic. So I would say that, in a fundamental level, the, the provisional IRA were more dangerous yeah. than than than, than organised crime. Mm-hmm. Um, the November, I think the 24th, 1983, is the day Don Tidy. Now, Don Tidy's working for Galen Weston's company. He's CEO, is he? He's the chairman and and, and uh, managing director of Quinsworth, which at that stage was the biggest supermarket chain in Ireland. They also had a number of other uh, uh, supermarket chains. They had Stewart's in the north. They had Powers in the south and crazy prices. So, yeah, they were big, big players in the Irish uh, He's market. high profile. He's on the news every now and then or whatever and he's he's well known um, what about a bit of his background what where yeah. did Don Tidy come from what sort of age is he at this point he's 48 and uh, what um, was I, I, what was very much underreported at the time and indeed since was that he was actually a widower he was a father of three children two of whom were in their I think early 20s but um, Mr. Tidy was 48 at that age and he had lost his wife Janice to leukaemia in 1980. And so the children uh, who were waiting day by day by the phone to hear about their father was going to be sick. There was the real, they were facing the real possibility of being orphaned. Mm. And um, of course, that, of course, that was tremendously uh, upsetting for them. Don Tidy himself had come to Ireland in 1965. He'd grown up uh, in, in London outside in, in 1935. He'd seen um, he was just he was a child during the outbreak of the Second World War, but he was transferred like tens of thousands of children out of London during the Blitz uh, when the Luftwaffe were bombing uh, London. He was transferred to uh, relations down on the south coast um, near Brighton. And from there in 1944, he saw the troops, the American and British in their tens of thousands marching off to the D-Day landings uh, in June 1944. He went to boarding school. He joined the military cadets. So it was a military, uh, he grew up in a time of war. Mm. And he did. He was a, a, a military cadet, as they were called in, in in school in the British education system. He had a natural ability for it. He, he did his two years national service, ten years in the territorial army. Uh, by which time he quickly became a captain. So, uh, and and meanwhile, he's also starting a career with Marks and Spencer as a manager. 
uh, in the sometime in the fifties. And long story short, um, he gets wind of a, that there's a, a, a budding supermarket tycoon in Ireland by the name of Ben Dunn, and. Uh, He's Don, a retailer, so he had clothes as well. Right, okay. And so uh, uh, Don Tidy decides he take a punt on this fella and he join the Ben Dunn, sort of the, the, the embryonic empire. And I think about four years later then, uh, the Galen Westons, Galen Weston came and uh, made him an offer he couldn't refuse and he joined the Weston Associated British Foods and that uh, empire. And he remained there until 1997, at which time he retired. By that stage, he had built Quinsworth up into a 700 million punts company at that stage. He was 62 when he retired. So like, I mean, he went back to the yeah. the job afterwards. So he was a very successful businessman in this country. He was a robust individual and clearly the military background served him with what was going to happen to him. But, um, so Don Tidy's a, a single father basically now. His wife mm. is dead. He's looking after his children. Mm. He's got a fantastic career. Um, but he's also looking at his boss, Gail Weston, was almost kidnapped. Shergar, Ben Dunn, of course, was kidnapped in 1981 previously. So he must be kind of watching his back, is he? Yeah, he, he is. Uh, well, he, we, we did raise that issue with him and he said he would vary his movements from time to time. But in the end of the day, he said, if people are going to kidnap me, I'm going to kidnap me. And he was quite fatalistic about it. There wasn't anything, there wasn't much he could do, really. I mean, he could have left Ireland before the kidnapping, but um, he tried to vary his routes and so on and tried to stay alert. Um, but he, and he, he, he also said, I mean, to us, uh, he says, you have to live your life. He wanted to bring his daughter to school in the mornings because he was the only parent and he wanted to do that. And, you know, he, he found out afterwards uh, that he was being under surveillance for weeks mm. while he was just doing this, in, this sort of... Uh, innocent job of bringing the daughter to school and then heading off to work himself. But Mr. Tidy's attitude is you have to live your life. They were aware of the security risk. They certainly were. Yeah. But he's, I, and he's of that mindset, I think, I'm going to live my life. Yeah. And, so, and plenty of people are when they're under threat of any sort. Mm. And Tommy, was it that sort of, you know, routine delivery of the child to school that kind of, that they targeted him? Um, yes, he, the, he basically what, what, what Don Tidy believes is that uh, they had been monitoring his movements for um, several weeks and they realised he was a very fit man. He, would, he was a man of routine. He would get up around six o'clock in the morning to walk his dogs up as far as the Hellfire Club. He was living in Woodtown at that stage at the uh, bottom of the Dublin mountains and come back. As it turned out, um, that morning he was late because he had been at an event the night before. So he normally left around seven, half seven. And um, he was late. Uh, but what, what Tidy thinks is that they realised that he was a man who was relatively young. He was physically fit. And therefore, he'd be able to withstand the rigours of, of captivity, but also a possibly long and lengthy standoff between, you know, his employers, uh, Associated British Food mm. and the IRA. So he reckons that one of the reasons that they, 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 they kidnapped him is because they felt he would endure that level. He would endure a long captivity while the negotiations went on to, to pay the So, ransom. of course, the state didn't want anybody to pay up the money. No. Because then they were sort of like, you know, welcoming it as such as a crime or they'd see it as being easy money. Um, there was questions over Ben Dunn whether money had been... Well, Ben Dunn believes that money has been paid. I mean, he, he told Miriam McCallaghan a few years ago he that money was paid, but he doesn't know how much. At the time, the speculation was between 300 and 500,000 pounds, which would be, what, 400,000 to 600,000. I'd say it's worth a couple of million nowadays mm. with inflation. So, I mean, if they did get that money, it was a very lucrative but the uh, government, uh, sorry, um, Nicola, they, within a few days uh, of the abduction, uh, a phone call, an anonymous caller, we, uh, apparently with a Northern Ireland accent, puts a phone call through to Associated British Foods in London to an executive there in which a demand is made for uh, five uh, million uh, pounds and uh, with a warning that if you go to the police about that, Mr. Tidy is dead. 
the company quickly contacts the British police anyway and the British government finds out quickly and the Irish government finds out very quickly and I think Gareth Fitzgerald is the Taoiseach, Michael Noonan is the Minister for Justice and they're apparently absolutely adamant there will be no, even if ABF uh, maybe toyed with the idea of maybe let's solve this whole crisis by paying the money. I think Noonan and the government are adamant that not because because then you have the domino effect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and also Margaret Thatcher was involved in all of this. Fitzgerald, Gareth Fitzgerald as a teacher put through a phone call to Margaret Thatcher who was actually on, on a on a flight coming back uh, from from India at that time and told and she ordered the Scotland Yard to monitor the movements of all the executives and associated British food in case they try to pay the money. So you're left in a very difficult situation. Galen Weston issues a statement saying with the life of a man at stake we'll, we'll do what we have to save his life. But of course if they pay the ransom they get Don Tidy back in one piece. But they're 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 giving the IRA two and a half years worth of money yeah. to to kill a hell of a lot more people, so it was a very very difficult situation mm. at the time for for both governments. And Don Tidy, meanwhile, had been blindfolded and brought into this very, as he describes, rough terrain, mm. rough underfoot. Mm. Um, he's basically in Ballinamore, in Leitrim. He's um, he's five miles from Ballinamore. Yeah. In a, in a forested area called, uh, uh, it's, it's mountain forest bog field. And, uh, it's, uh, and he's specifically in a, in a, uh, a young enough forest of pine trees called Dorado Wood, but it's extremely remote. I mean, I'm from Ballinamore and I wouldn't have had a cl- really, a lot, a lot, most people wouldn't have had a clue how you would get, because it's a network of country roads getting narrower and narrower mm. and then until eventually you're crossing crossing fields. And of course, Mr. Tidy himself had no idea where he was. He'd been blindfolded, uh, he'd been hooded um, and uh, he'd been transferred in the back of a van. He'd been beaten he had a cracked rib from the uh, snap from the abduction, which was very painful, and 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 that later that night he found himself being dragged by the handcuffs. His arm, wrists were handcuffed, being dragged. He knows he's out in the open terrain, but it's wind, it's rain, it's winter, and he's in this forest. But for the next twenty three days, he's living in a state of sensory deprivation, visually. Orally, in terms of his ears, his eyes, he's chained at the wrists, he's chained at the ankles, he's manacled to a, a tree, and uh, did uh, they not put him underground? Did they not? No, there's no underground. It's just an incline. Depression in the, in a depression in the, in the surface. Surface. And they threw a plastic, a sheet of plastic polythene down on it, and he lay down on that in a sleeping bag, and they had a, a bit of a stick and a bit of polythene draped off the stick as a sort of a, a little bit of shelter, but. He, the rain, he could feel, when the rain came, which it did all the time, he could feel the plastic sort of roof, Maria, coming right down on his face. Mm. And he never knew the dimensions of where he was staying. I mean, he never saw the hide he was staying in. He never saw his kidnappers. He was handcuffed to a tree during the day. He was blindfolded and he has, and, and he had bandages wrapped around his head. So he had complete sensory deprivation. And, and coupled with that, he had a, he, his ribs had been injured as a result of being shoved into the, into the stair, into the footwell of a car. And he, he went down on the, on the, mm. on the, on the, uh, um, the uh, gear stick and that he injured his ribs badly. So, I mean, it was, it was a terrible ordeal. So would it suggest that did they did they come up with this plan kind of fairly quickly and they hadn't um, much planning goes into that or have they do they think this is a good idea to keep someone of the outdoors including themselves? Well, I, mean, I think there has to be easier ways of surely of holding somebody. Well, we know from John Carnan, who is one of the few people who was actually jailed as a result of. Um, yeah, uh, as a result of um, uh, the kidnapping, he was the he was one of the owners of the wood. We know that um, the hide had been prepared in advance, several days in advance, by a guy who was is known as Sonny. I, I have some idea who he is, but I can't, I can't, I can't be sure. So obviously they had 
prepare this in advance. Um, I mean, it was a well-prepared operation in the sense that they, they were, were watching him. Yeah, they were watching him, but also there were the, the first. There were two sets of kidnappers. In effect, there was kidnappers came from Cork and Kerry who kidnapped Tidy, and then there was another, uh, and brought him to a rendezvous point in Kildare, and then there was another set of kidnappers who brought him to Leitrim. So they were well prepared. Mm, for yeah, they had camping equipment there and a stove and some sleeping bags and food and stuff like that, which would have been uh, provided and set up by uh, by the sort of Sinn Féin IRA in the Ballamore area led by John Jim McGurl, who by then was vice president of Sinn Féin, a Leitrim County Councillor, founder member of the Provisional IRA. Uh, uh, he had sheltered uh, uh, an, uh, 10 or 11 of the May's escapees who had escaped a couple of months previously from Belfast. He had put them up in safe houses around the hinterland of, around Ballinamore. So there was manpower there and there was logistical capacity there. And uh, we, we we believe therefore that's why Dorado was chosen because Miguel was there and he was able to organise it. Mm. And and there's no way in the world that the that the gang who uh, who were literally driving tidy in the car or the van would have found their way to Dorado Wood without being guided in by local some local yeah. knowledge and that. And when they we think when they arrived in Dorado Wood, the camping gear was there. It was kind of sort of some degree. Yeah, yeah. And the idea behind it was that uh, at that stage, it was becoming more and more difficult to rob banks. And the idea was that in one fell swoop, you could you could fund the terrorist campaign for two and a half years by by kidnapping an individual. In effect, they would regard it as a victimless crime because they would release the uh, the, the hostage unharmed, and um, they'd get their money from a wealthy company which didn't really care about what was going on in Ireland. Mm. They had the, the deep pockets. That was the idea um, behind the kidnapping and um, obviously didn't work. No. So, yeah, I wanted to ask you about, and I should know, I was only a small child uh, when this happened and yet these kidnaps and Desi, I heard the border fox, they're just seared into my soul. I remember the fear. I remember feeling the fear, I suppose, of my parents about these kidnaps what was the national sentiment that this had happened? I mean, there must have been an enormous amount of pressure being put on the Gardaí to get this guy back alive and to show the IRA who was in charge. 100% Nicola, because going back to what the point you, we, we discussed earlier was that now now the, um, the security forces, the government, the Department of Justice, the Minister for Justice, the Taoiseach, the top brass of the Garda Síochána, they were now on, sort of on public trial because this wasn't a typical crime in that it's over in a few minutes with a robbed bank or something. This was actually, it became a 23-day test of the state's resources in which, in which the public were watching and listening on the radio and television every single day. So it, the, 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 they were, everyone, the, the country was tuned in to see how are our police force doing here? Mm. Are they going to get this man? And uh, so therefore, that amplified it and magnified the pressure on them with every passing day because it, it, it accumulated into this horrendous <clears throat> saga of, and can you do it or can you not? Can you save this man or can you not? Yeah, and I, I and and it's as Tommy says, it's 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 very hard. To remember those times now, because um, kidnapping is quite rare. I yeah. think, yeah, it's it's become. I, I don't know. It was a it's very, very high risk. Yeah, well, it, it's very high risk. That's true. But in the seventies and eighties, it was derogatory. I mean, not just in yeah. in Ireland, but in countries like Italy and Germany. And uh, it was a sort of it was it was a crime of choice for a lot of uh, terrorist gangs at that stage. So, I mean, if you can't find this man, Don Tidy, what does that say about your ability? To keep law and order. Mm. That was that was what mm. was at stake. It wasn't just Don Tidy mm. that was at stake. Yeah. His life was at stake, you know. And like the intelligence, was it forthcoming? Was it how long did it take for I suppose them to start rounding up in Ballinamore, realizing that's where he was? Or was it like were they were the the the, the guardie trying to fight this blind? No, they had immediate information. Uh, one was from the uh, famous informer Sean O'Callaghan, who was based down in Kerry at the time, and he claimed to have been one of the organisers of the original kidnap gang who 
came from Kerry and Cork and kidnapped Don Tidy. You also had information from uh, Freddy Scapatici, um, Steak Knife, uh, who told his British handlers not only about uh, Tidy, but also about Gail and Weston. Then there was a third uh, tip-off uh, from Gardy had surveillance on a guy in a uh, well-known Republican in, in Selbridge County, Kildare, whose car had been used in the handover, and he... All three of them said Leitrim. Leitrim might be a small county yeah. in terms of population. It's a big county to go look. And so they um, they went to, uh, they, they had a look around the border, which was the obvious choice between North Leitrim and Fermanagh. But actually, they were looking in the right county, but in the wrong place. Eventually, they uh, put John Joe McGurl uh, and his sort of henchman in, in, in around Ballinmore. Yeah, yeah, uh, John, Fein, yeah vice president, vice yeah, president. Under, under surveillance and they monitored his movements. They also um, had a number of intercepted phone calls from John Joe McGurl to a senior Republican in the North talking about the heat that was coming on them. So they were able to, by degrees, day after day, narrow it down, Firstly to Balnamore, but then to the hinterland of Balnamore, and that's where the search happens, uh, and that's where um, Tidy is eventually freed from. Now, of course, this is called intelligence because it's not to be shared, and it, so this is happening behind the scenes. But like three weeks is a long time for the public to keep the public sort of, you know, from shouting blue murder. Mm. You know, it's a long time. So, wh- how are they handling their PR, the Guardi? Um. How are they keeping uh, confidence uh, in the nation? Mind you, bear in mind, uh, that time, though, of course, this is pre-internet, pre-social media. Yeah. So um, it's uh, uh, obviously of RTE. And the news is on in every home, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, it is. It people is. are in many ways better informed than Probably. people nowadays. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean you're, you've got the morning news, the lunchtime news, um, the six o'clock news, the nine o'clock news. And then you've got the uh, print papers and uh, obviously the print, print. But I suppose if you, if, you, if you add it all up together, it's, it's still only a drop in the ocean compared to the media feeding frenzy you'd have now, uh, I'd imagine. Yeah, I mean, would, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, albeit, albeit um, of course, of course, but I, I don't think it, I don't think it was this. Uh, they were they were felt very exposed, the senior guardy mm. and indeed the Minister for Justice. They all did. But it wasn't as wall to wall twenty four seven as it would have been now. So they were relatively. The response was to try and sort of, I suppose, you know, tell the public, you know, we're we're yeah. going to we're going to get him well, back. There yeah, the, there we're was on the, the job. Do, we're doing everything yeah. we can. And uh, yeah. and his family, Don's family, made uh, um, televised appeals, st- st- appeals mm-hmm. for his safe release and. And there was all sorts of behind the scenes. There was a vigil as well there every was, night in White Church, which yeah, was, and in, yeah, was Don Tidy's local church. Local chapel. And, and, that, and um, they put um, every super, uh, super Quinn shop, <coughs> had the, the management mounted uh, TVs with... Uh, Quinsworth. Uh, sorry, Quinsworth, excuse me, with uh, TVs put into every store with running appeals. If you know, if you've seen any cars, anything suspicious. So that, that was all going on. Mm-hmm. So behind the scenes, the police are slowly making their way to, towards Durand. Yeah, Durand, yeah. yeah. So. And by December, what, what date are we in December when? I'd say around the 13th, the yeah. Operation Santa Claus is what it's called, uh, because obviously you're in the run up to Christmas. Operation Santa Claus starts on the 13th of December. Um, and a few days from that, they had seen a number of maze escapees who had escaped from who were being seen in the Leitrim area. So that brought further intelligence uh, and a sense that they were nearing their quarry, so to speak. That would have been Bick McFarlane and Gerald MacDonald. Yeah. Yeah. So they were two guys who had escaped from prison, very well known Republicans. They were seen in the area. Or yes. In the mountains outside yeah. Ballinamore. So the, where, the, John, where, where John Jimmy Garrell was from. Yeah, Ochnachilin, a place called Ochnachilin. Uh, so people just spotted them. No, uh, well, um, or was this apparently intelligent? surveillance? Yes. Uh, they, they were spotted on by surveillance uh, a unit, but I think it was at night, and yes. I think it was across. Like you could be cross, we could be talking about a long, long way across mountainous terrain, and while, so while they might have been spotted, mm-hmm. it would be another thing to catch them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I mean, at the time, uh, the backdrop to all of this is that there was a massive breakout from the Mays prison in September 1930, sorry, 1983. 38 prisoners escaped. 19 were still on the run uh, a couple of weeks afterwards. And we think between 
10 and 12 of them ended up in Leitrim and they had been provided with safe houses by John Joe McGurley right. with a network of people who would help them. So this is this is a locus of sort of manpower, mm-hmm. of experienced manpower that the provost can use to carry out this kidnapping and, and, and uh, in Leitrim. And McGurley has also been kept under surveillance for days and one of the rumours I remember went around like wildfire on Ballamore at the time was that he was seen shopping buying, buying loads and loads of groceries in the local supermarket which you, he apparently wasn't in the habit of doing like and uh, uh, driving off in his car with this uh, uh, but then the, the final perhaps piece in the jigsaw was that he made a phone call to a prominent Northern Ireland based Republican either the night before the rescue or the night before the night of the rescue and that the man to whom he called his phone was tapped by the RUC and McGurl and this man were discussing the Dorada situation and that the RUC passed that information on to the Gardaí pretty quickly. It was not quite confirmed that. Did they mention Dorada during the phone conversation? We don't know. Don't know. Right. But but, but certainly the... Um, the, the Whatever the, happened, it yeah, got them the, a little bit closer. The hinterland again. around Ballinamore now yeah. is for sure. Right. It's for sure now. So they've got that far. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So then they decide they're bringing in the army. Yes. And they're going to search literally the way you would for a missing person. Yeah. Literally step yeah. by step yeah. across these woods. So... Um, some recruits are brought in mm-hmm. and obviously then um, the Garda, Gary Sheehan, who is, is he actually qualified? Is he no, trained he's a recruit out? Guard he's a recruit he hasn't, he hasn't yeah. passed out yet. Okay. No. So this is a kind of an emergency situation for the state and it's like more recently people remember during COVID that, you know, some of the doctors were sort of rushed through the end of their training to get out and sort of get on the front lines. But this is what this has become. And um, they are brought along to search, which appears a simple job, really. But if you're kind of making your way through the the woods with these very dangerous armed men, you know, hindsight is a great thing. yeah, it's. I mean, what the, recruit would be ready for that? Yeah, the training. If you look at some of the ordnance survey maps as I did from that time, it's just like you wouldn't even know where to start because it's all, it's it's mountain, it's forest, um, and there's one, there's just one wood after another because basically the government decided back in the 1960s that Leitrim was good for nothing other than planting trees. So there was lots and lots of different plantations. It wasn't just Dorada the wood. There yeah, was I mean, like was forest after yeah, forest, you know, the, the, mountain. The, 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 Dorado yeah. Wood is only one of, only one of dozens them. of woods yeah. in that in general. So they've organised these searches and they've started. They have. The, the um, kidnappers must be aware that their yeah. time is limited. Yeah. But they have to stay put. Well, then they decide to, um, they decide on the final day, basically, that they're going to move tidy and it's then... Because obviously they can hear the um, they can hear the the the, the, the search the parties search closing in on them. So you're looking at the the search parties were were known as Rudolph one to ten. Obviously the Christmas theme. It's twenty five uh, army guards and recruit guard the personnel. Some of them armed in each of the uh, each of the different Rudolphs. And Rudolph five is the one that comes in drum in drum. Sorry, John Coleman Wood, as it was mm-hmm. known, Dorada Wood. And they were the ones that came across the hideout on the 16th of December and, mm. and all hell broke loose then. And what happened? Well, this is about two, half two in the afternoon, uh, Friday, December the 16th. Bear in mind, it's winter and it's dark. Or it's, it's, I mean, it's winter light, even in broad daylight, if you know what I mean. But uh, So it's very grey and watery light. And then they, they go into the forest or the woods and it's darker still. And uh, Rudolph Five, the search party, uh, at, comes through the trees and all of a sudden... Uh, they spot the, this tableau in front of them. Uh, strange men, masked, in military fatigues, handling automatic weapons, camping equipment all around them. And um, the soldiers and the detectives and policemen and trainees, they kind of come to a stop because it's, it's almost like there's a dawning realisation and this sort of silence descends because now the moment has arrived. They've reached the epicentre of the manhunt. They're there. And what do you do now? What do you do next? 
So they t- t- take a breath for a couple of seconds and um, one of the uh, guardee shouts in, asks, shouts, addresses these strange men, identify yourselves, who are you? Something like that. And um, there's no reply. And there's a whisper off. Uh, they whisper the guards to each other, there's dangerous men in there. And then Gary Sheehan um, uh, shouts at them, identify yourself, soldier. And there's another split second of a delay. And next thing, there's a volley of gunfire. And poor Gary Sheehan is shot dead instantly and, and raked from head, from, I'm afraid, from foot to, foot to, foot to, foot to head. And uh, he falls back and almost in the same instant, then another volley of fire rings out and Patrick Kelly is mortally wounded as well. And that all happens in the space of a couple of seconds. And almost instantaneously then, the IRA unit detonate a stun grenade. And, and that's and in that chaos and panic, then that's the moment Don Tidy understands this is my chance. He throws himself into a military role down an incline, uh, and he comes at the feet of uh, soldiers and guards. Meanwhile, the terrorists uh, uh, hold uh, grab seven men, soldiers and guardy hostage at gunpoint and force marches them as human shields in front of them out, out of the wood, and they break through the wood onto uh, an adjacent road. Mm. And then that's not even the end of it. So the the, the gang double back to a, a nearby farmhouse where there's a car waiting with the keys and the ignition. Four of them get into the car. One gets into the boot and they start firing indiscriminately at Gardaí and Army who are searching for them. They, um, the Detective Sergeant Donny Kelleher is shot in both legs. Don Tidy narrowly misses having you know, got away from them, narrowly misses being shot by them. Um, Inspector Bill Summers was on the front cover of the book. He had five uh, bullets in his flak jacket. So they drive on, firing at will, until they're stopped at a at a checkpoint that Gardy have set up. They fire again at Gardy. They get out of the car. They jump into a nearby field, firing and using fire and manoeuvre to keep ahead of their, their pursuers. And then they disappear into a vast plantation on the Leitrim uh, Cavan border and they're not seen again. Mm. I mean, there's just terrible scenes and uh, very well and descriptively um, played out for us there. But it seems like the search party that came upon them had nobody considered what any of these Rudolph 1 to 10 were going to do should they come upon them. It's a good question. I mean, what do you do at the moment of truth? What do you do? Um, were they observing the protocols and their, and the rules of engagement by giving these men a chance? Were they observing, maintaining their discipline and their training, maybe their humanity, uh, rather than just opening fire indiscriminately at these men, you know, in, in the wood? Uh, culturally, um, were, were the Gardaí at that stage, were the Gardaí culturally even thinking in terms of armed confrontations with terrorists and criminals? And so I mean, it sounds more, much, so much more like a military situation where soldiers would be much more comfortable and possibly well, more. Were and they were there. Yeah. I mean, the soldiers were there. Paddy Kelly was yeah. there. And beside Gary Sheehan, I mean, Gary was a trainee, as we've just said. But Patrick Kelly, 36 years of age, he had done three tours of duty in the Lebanon. He was, by all accounts, a very, very proficient soldier, very experienced. And, um, and who was in charge? The guards of the army? Yeah, the guards, the, 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 the man who was in charge was Chief Superintendent J.J. McNally. He was a sort of... Uh, a kind of he was uh, he was uh, in charge of the sort of border area mm-hmm. of Cavan, Monaghan, Leitrim. So he he was ultimately in charge. But I mean, I'm sure if if you were to go back to that time again, things would have been done differently. Mm. Um, the chain of command was loose again you know what were mm. the rules of engagement if you came across these these guys I mean PJ Higgins uh, who was one of the um, army uh, person he was an army sergeant and a good friend of Paddy Kelly's said, said and naively as it turned out he said it just didn't occur to us that the provost would would, get, would yeah. open fire. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, they were supposed to have been at that stage. Um, they had this 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 thing called Standing Order Eight, which was, um, you know, you were not to get into armed confrontations with with uh, as he put it, the Free State Army or soldiers. But the truth is that they had already at that stage killed several Gardaí in in, in armed confrontations. Yeah, and were they? The IRA unit that had carried out this kidnap, they're obviously military trained. 
are they acting in a way that is almost, you know, have they, do you think previously had conversations with what happens if they come upon us? What do we do? Or did this just happen? Do you think these volleys of fire where they just panic? I wouldn't like to speculate on uh, on their motivations or their thoughts at that at that exact time. I mean, I mean, had they already crossed the Rubicon, sort of in terms of action and indeed morally or ethically, had they had they heard the um, security forces in the previous days and discussed, uh, well, if we are discovered, we shoot first and ask questions later, or was it in the moment, as you uh, as you say? I well, I wouldn't speculate, on, but it, it it does seem to me that the contrast. To me, seems very poignant in those couple of seconds of silence, mm-hmm. where Gary Sheehan and Paddy Kelly and their colleagues give these fellas a chance, and the same, unfortunately, tragically, the same respect isn't shown back to them. You know, yeah. Uh, it yeah. should also be said that the IRA issued a statement that night saying that the 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 the, the, the men who fired on the on Kelly and Sheehan were in fear of their lives after what had happened at. Um, uh, in Roundwood, where by mm-hmm. you were basically mauled, um, so um, that's that. That was the excuse they gave that like there could have been, and, and indeed the same excuse was given by Martin McGuinness uh, in an interview with Hot Press about two years later, in which he said, you know, they were they were acting in self defence, but the reality is is that there had been no there was no shot fired mm-hmm. in the incident, and uh, that killed Kelly and she and but from provisional IRA weapons. So, you know, they, it's not like they were involved in a gunfight These at that moments, time. moments, like, and I'm sure they're so brief and they're really yeah. just moments or seconds, but they have such an uh, everlasting effect, mm-hmm. obviously, on the family of Gary Sheehan, who was only a young guy. 23. Yeah, and Paddy Kelly, I think, had children. Four boys. Four boys. The oldest nine, the youngest 10 or 11 weeks. Yeah, who had to grow up forevermore without their father, with him being killed this way. Um, you have... I suppose the IRA in the aftermath tried to align themselves, did they, to the, uh, to the, you know, they they tried to basically blame the Brits on the fact that this shootout had happened, and they went again to attack London. Yeah. So they, the 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 day after um, they shot dead Kelly and Sheehan, uh, an IRA unit uh, blew up Harrods, um, killing. People out shopping, doing Christmas shopping, um, massive car bomb. Um, it was a horrific scene. Uh, there was reports at the time of, of glass falling like rain on top of, of shoppers. And the two incidents together uh, became synonymous in the public mind with basically the depravity of the provisional IRA and the lengths they were to go to, they would go to to further their aims to the extent that, you know, Gareth Fitzgerald sent a message of condolence to Margaret Thatcher at that time saying, you know, basically we're we're both enemies. The people of Ireland and the people of Britain are united in sorrow this Christmas. We're both enemies. Yeah. The so provisional IRA, together, provisional IRA is a com- co- yeah. common enemy. So. And the IRA didn't want that. It wanted support. No, that's true. Um, you know, you can see if they were already talking to Thatcher while they were trying to stop the ransom being paid. They sort of had opened the communication lines between them. the Irish government and, and the British government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, they did. Yeah, there was, uh, and it had been apparently a pretty cold relationship between Thatcher and um, Irish. Uh, yeah, well, the, the, the government, the, the Margaret Thatcher believed the Irish government was soft on terrorism yeah. because a there was no extradition happening at that time, and the the, the Irish government would not allow overflights or the per, pursuit of of of, um, uh, of of IRS suspects across the border. And uh, when when Malbatten was killed in seventy nine, she absolutely carpeted Jack Lynch, who was the Taoiseach at the time, saying, "You know, you're not doing enough, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And Jack Lynch told her. You know, we have our problems as well with them. Mm. You know, this happened in our jurisdiction. People don't want this to happen. But I think it finally got through to Thatcher after the the, the guys were killed in Dorado Wood that this really was an, uh, a con- con- common enemy between the two the two states, and they, they needed to work together if they're going to defeat the IRA. Exactly. Now, thirty people around Balnamore were identified as having helped this gang. Um, you know, this this it's the idea, I suppose that. There may have been 
those who held Tidy physically hostage, but there was plenty of other people needed to be involved to allow that situation to happen. Um, what about the two that ran through the fields? We've last heard of them as they're, they've been involved in the shootout and they've gone missing. Where do you go to? They went to Clare Morris. Uh, mm. Two of them went to Clare The gang split up. Yeah, the gang yeah. split up. So they, they, they all split up in different directions. Uh, two went uh, east were east from the, the crime site to uh, cross from Cavan border into North Longford and disappeared. Another guy was able to, uh, who was living here locally, made his way across Schlieveneeren, which is the big mountain in South Leitrim. On foot? Yeah, on foot, yeah. I mean, it's if you load the terrain, like, I mean, Schlieveneeren is this sort of vast kind of edifice that that, that, that's, that that really dominates South Leitrim. You can see it from anywhere. And there was what we know for certain is that two of the gang were taken by a guy called Francis McGurl, who's a nephew of John John McGurl and who had been acquitted of the or of the um, uh, assassination of Mountbatten mm-hmm. from 79. The two of them were taken to a house in Clare Morris and the Gardaí surrounded the house in Clare Morris and this turned out to be a complete farce. One of the uh, officers uh, uh, discharged his weapon accidentally. All of the Gardaí that had been, had been uh, uh, mined in the front of the house disappeared round the back to see what the commotion was about. The three kid, the two kidnappers and their helper ran out the front door into a field and disappeared. Mm. They're good at that. <laughs> yeah, they are. <laughs> now, by uh, two years later, of course, Don Tidy returns to his family and um, I'm sure he was very deeply traumatised by his experience. But um, the company sort of consider basically paying money so that it doesn't happen again. Almost like uh, an insurance policy. Mm. And having been having been absolutely warned off by governments and haven't seen the absolute horrors of the what happened and... Um, and uh, seemingly at some sort of uh, unofficial or informal level, they talk, they discuss seriously about somehow making some sort of a payment that might shield them or an insurance policy against future kidnappings by the kid, IRA. Kid, kidnappings. No, did that? What was the um, the end result of that? Was so there's an extraordinary there was an extraordinary situation whereby basically money was routed through a Swiss bank into New York, um, and a draft for 1.7 million pounds was given to an Irish businessman to deposit in a bank in the Bank of Ireland in Navan. And of course, that amount of money in those days was kind of what the hell is this all about? Mm. And when the Irish government got, got got wind of it, within 18 hours, they had railroaded through uh, uh, an emergency uh, act to seize the money, those £1.7 million. Two business people at that time claimed that the money was there, so it was for a legitimate enterprise, which was basically a pork and bacon um, factory. Um, but the... the, the, the um, the government refused to hand over the money they put out um, and and eventually the two guys who claimed that um, the money was legitimately theirs died. Their estates made no claim on the money and um, um, and it was paid into the state coffers in 2006 by which time it accumulated enough interest to be worth £6 million. So oh, the only beneficiaries of the, of the kidnapping was actually the state. But it just goes to show you, um, even though Associated British Foods had been warned not to pay a ransom mm. in any circumstances, they appeared, according to uh, reports in the Sunday Times at the time, to have to have um, rejected the, uh, the, 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 rejected the um, advice that was given to them by their security personnel and agreed to pay it. And it's extraordinary when you think about it that these people were still living in fear of the IRA two, two years after Dorado would. Absolutely. Um, and look, that can look like a good idea, but usually they come back looking for more. If you pay anything, yeah. <laughs> wouldn't mm. that be the advice? Mm. Now, Big McFarlane went on trial in 2008, but uh, he successfully, what did he successfully argue? that Was it the passage of time or without going uh, into too much detail about yeah, it? Um, it was before the Special Criminal Court. Yeah, that, um, that, 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 that was, a, without going into, a, into too much, a long story short, I mean, he had, uh, he had absconded, uh, he'd gone to ground and subsequently uh, fled to Europe, disappeared for years. 
uh, and then 1998, uh, I think, is that the Good Friday Agreement? Yeah, just but, before this. Yeah. yeah, he's traveling from Dublin to back to Belfast and he's stopped short of the border with Northern Ireland. He's arrested by Gardaí. He's taken to Dundalk Garda Station and he's charged with offences in relation to the kidnapping of Mr. Tidy. And, um, and, that's a, and that's the start of a 10-year legal marathon that goes to the High Court, the Supreme Court, mm-hmm. back to the High Court, back to the Supreme Court, till it finally, the way is paved in the summer of 2008, 10 years after that arrest, uh, for his trial in the Special Criminal Court, which collapses after, uh, within a week, on matters relating to the statement he made in Dundalk Garda Station 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. It's as best yes. I can yes. sum it up so or somehow explain it. Ronan, you they basically yeah. got those statements thrown out and without them, yeah. there wasn't enough yeah. of a case against him. Albeit that they had fingerprint evidence still yeah. and uh, his uh, uh, fingerprints were being found on a milk carton in the uh, in the hideout. Mm-hmm. So the bottom line is no nobody has been convicted of the murder of... Yeah, because there's three crimes here, obviously. There's two murders and one kidnapping. Mm. Um, And nobody has been. And the cases are still open, the murder cases. It's interesting that the legacy bill does not extend to the Republic of Ireland, so there's a possibility, albeit remote at this Mm. stage, that... um, that somebody, that there might still be uh, a conviction in relation to this. As you know, murder has no statute of limitations, so, um, but I would strongly doubt it at this stage. And in the book, um, The Kidnapping, you name sort of the suspects and what has happened, some of them. Um, I mean, they've, they're an eclectic bunch. Who yeah. They're that. Uh, they want to disappear Sorry? The one who disappeared. There's one of them is very interesting. Uh, uh, it was, again, May's escapee, Tony McAllister. Uh, Tony McAllister um, was, I think it, he had been, he was one of the May's escapees. He disappeared after Dorada Wood and was never seen or heard from again. The only evidence I could find about him was in Jerry Kelly, uh, the MLA who, who wrote a book about his the May's prison escape, and he gave details about where they'd all gone to, and he said he married somebody under an assumed name and vanished. <laughs> don't believe that. Well, I don't yeah, believe in romance. Yeah, I, 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 I look. I mean, it's 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 bizarre. Romance, I yeah. mean, who? Yeah. Um, so what is it? I mean. You know, the book isn't just the story of a kidnapping. It's a story about how things were. You know, what a bizarre country we were living in. Mm. What strange things were happening. And, you know, how everything sort of merged together in this kidnap between the escapes, I suppose, after the hunger strikes, all that was going on. What does it kind of, do you think the story teaches us about ourselves back then? Gosh, um... The good guys kind of won, but not really, because... Yeah. I mean, uh, for my own community, I mean, um, uh, Ballymore and that, we were sort of branded as um, Republicans, as supporters of uh, uh, those terrible crimes that somehow we we sympathise when, when in fact, the historical reality is, uh, is that Ballymore actually was the antithesis of Sinn Féin, a very conservative town that had its own Fine Gael TD. The town had it was the power base of uh, a family, the Reynoldses, uh, who, uh, the first of whom was elected in 1927 when it was still coming in Gael. And you know as well as anyone, Nicola, the Law and Order Party was coming in Gael, Fine Gael. Uh, you know, standing four square behind on Garda Sheikhan or the Defence Forces. And that's who the people of Ballymore voted for for 70 years. Mm. The Reynoldses. And uh, and yet, after Durad in particular, were saddled with this utterly, with almost mythical reputation uh, as being supporters uh, of terrorism and, Republi- and uh, violent republicanism. And indeed, that somehow, therefore, we condoned the murders of poor Gary Sheehan and, and mm. Patrick Kelly when the historical record 
is totally the opposite. So it's been important to you to yeah. work on this story. Too. Yeah, it has. Yeah, yeah. It's personal for both of us yeah. as yeah. we're both from Leitrim, you know, mm. so yeah. we, we feel that this story is important to tell. I mean, what you have in this, in Leitrim basically has been for the last 40 years a sort of collective amnesia that has sort of uh, um, descended on the county. So what you have at the moment is a, is a bombastic memorial to... Um, John Joe McGurl and believe it or not in our town. A, a memorial walk which is part of the Balnamore family festival every year it's hard to believe but it is and yet no memorial at all to um, Kelly or, 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 or Sheehan two men who were murdered in our county we feel very strongly about that that mm. there needs to be a memorial to both of them mm. Mm. Do you think the stories these stories from the Troubles in the North are finding a time now to come out there seems to be a lot of information people seem to be time whatever changes things or heals conceivably know. conceivably they're having a moment or maybe more than a moment or maybe that uh, it's just the start isn't it? there's a yeah, huge maybe, amount of books out are this we psychi- year are we psychically are we, are we are we ready maybe that's what I was I thinking wonder our, yeah. I wonder are we starting already to peel back the layers on those terrible times and and um, the, the cruelty, the, the, the how casually, as one of the things I picked up from listening to the Kellys and the Sheehans is how nonchalantly lives were destroyed. Mm. Yeah. Just how blithely you might destroy a family's happiness. Mm. You might end a human, another human being's life. And just how... And then how quickly it's glossed over and everyone moves on, you know. And, and those effects, you see, come down through the generations yeah. because Paddy yeah. Kelly's children had no father growing up. So they're going to parent without with that big gap in their own life. And they're, you know, his grandchildren, I'm sure he has some there now, mm. uh, will also be affected by it. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. I mean, I, my, my previous books have been related to the uh, decadent centenaries and I've, I've come across on many occasions uh, uh, times when, 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 when um, the third and fourth, sometimes the fourth generation of people are affected by, um, by, by, by what happened in the past. I mean, I'll give you one example. Thomas McDonough, who was executed from 1916 Rising, his wife died in a drowning accident. Um, a, a year later, um, so the children are left as orphans. There, they have there are two kids. There are Don and Barbara, is what they're called, and um, their children. Uh, I know them well. Or their grandchildren, or Thomas McDonough's grandchildren, will tell you what a difficult life they had because mm. of who the who Thomas McDonough's children were. So it it goes on and on and on. It's it's um, events brand generations. Yeah, they do. They do. Yeah, and, and and I was just thinking about that about the first and second world wars as well. I mean, the amount of people around Europe who were left without a father, left without a mother, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and and definitely, I mean, I could I could tell you so many stories from. My, my, my research in the decade of centenaries and I'm very interested in how it affects families generations later mm. and it really does and um, and just on that note if I may I mean um, uh, Gary Sheehan's mother uh, still lives she's, she's great age now late 80s maybe 90 I'm not sure to which and um, um, uh, her, her, they're very private people and discreet um, but Gary's sister said that their mother you know she her heart was broken on December the 16th and she has carried that broken heart very privately, dignified uh, in her own way from that day to this. Mm. She carry it all the way into the grave with her whenever she does pass. Yeah. Well, Tommy Conlon and Rona McGreevy, thank you very much. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Thanks Nicola, very much. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. Research assistant is Clodamini. If you like this show and love true crime, leave us a review. Or why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.